Well, good morning. Welcome to FBN this morning. We're glad to have you. If you have your Bibles, get them open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be closing out chapter 3 today, which means we have one more chapter to go. Um, and then we will uh, be done with our study of First and Second Timothy that's covered most of 2021 and 2022. So we're excited about that. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a black one. See back in front of you. Get to page 1056. You'll be right where we're at. And that's important to us. We want you to know that. And I want to thank... Uh, the praise team uh, for leading us this morning in worship. Thank each and every one of you for being here. And uh, to piggyback off the video, just wish a happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Um, I think that my favorite line in there was that it's a high calling and huge responsibility. And it certainly is that. And um, we've seen uh, some of the damaging effects in our society, in our world of fatherlessness or absent fathers or apathetic fathers. And so to all of you who are giving it a go, right? None of you are getting it perfect, uh, but all of you are trying, all right? We honor you today. Um, and Thank you for honoring God's design by stepping into those roles, and uh, it's our encouragement for you. And for everybody who, by the way, this and any holiday brings um, a measure of grief or pain or hurt this morning, um, then, then we certainly uh, recognize that and are prayerful for you this morning and pray that the grace of Jesus will cover you uh, today as well. Um, but I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we jump into 2 Timothy 3, so let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, for the opportunity that we have to gather together as your body this morning. We're thankful for the chance we've already had to lift up your name in, in worship and song. And uh, we ask now as we turn our attention to your word, uh, that you would be the one that speaks most powerfully. God, you promise that it will never return to you void. And so we bank on that this morning, uh, that, that it, will, it will go out amongst this room and amongst uh, the hearts and souls and minds here and will have its intended effect. Uh, before it comes back to you. And so we pray for that um, longingly. We cling to that promise, and we just pray that you'll get the glory from all this. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So for the last few months, I've been going to a specialist to get some help with my back because that's how young I am now, right? And in going there, I, I've experienced something entirely new to me. I thought I was, I've been in the world of uh, chiropractors and backs for a while, so I thought I knew pretty much every type of treatment, but there's a new one that after uh, receiving therapy and receiving treatments, before I leave, I'm put on what is called a whole body vibration machine, which is a machine you step up onto, and, and then they turn it on, and the, and the plates on it that your feet are on begin to pulsate violently and aggressively. Right? And the idea is just to begin to shake your entire body up, right? And, it, and, and the thinking behind it is that it, it will force uh, your muscles to contract and relax dozens of times per second. It'll increase blood flow. Uh, it reduces soreness from the therapy. And whatever treatment you've got, it, it aids in making that last longer. And they max out at 10 minutes. So every time it's a 10-minute session, I've gotten to the point where they can turn the machine up to its highest level. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's not the most flattering of looks, Right? Getting shaken there, it's, it's a good way to learn where you're toned and where you're not, right? And so if you want to know that, you can get on one of those machines. But it's not, un, it's not uncomfortable, right? And it's, it goes faster than you think. But there's this really kind of cool moment every time. And it's when the timer goes off and the session is done and you step off for the first time onto really solid ground. That isn't shaking, that isn't wild, that isn't vibrant, vibrating. It's just solid. And there's just a relief and a stillness and peace that comes from that every time. Because it's in such a sharp contrast to what you just experienced on the whole body vibration machine. We've been studying 2 Timothy uh, since January. And it's, it's this letter from Paul to his young protege, Timothy. 
And he's left Timothy in charge of a, a really difficult assignment of taking charge of the church of Ephesus that was just in shambles. And as we've looked the last several weeks at chapter 3, he's been going back and forth with Timothy about what Timothy is currently facing. And then he kind of slides into prophetic mode about what Timothy will face in the future and what all who call on Christ Jesus will face in the future. And as you go through this letter, it's not a stretch at all to say that it had to feel like the ground beneath Timothy was constantly shifting and shaking. In chapter 1, we read that everybody who surrounded him in the province of Asia have all deserted the truth. All of them. He's left all alone as this one beacon in Ephesus. In chapter 2, we, there's a whole second half of the chapters about people who are opposing Timothy, people who are against him, people who want to get him off message and off, off mission and off message, and people who disagree with all that he's doing. Chapter 3, it tells us that there's going to be misplaced love and false teachers in the church, and that persecution is not only already there, but it's going to increase and get worse. And I think, and maybe this is true for you, for me, one of the most sobering parts of studying this letter is how easily I've been able to identify with it. Because there's nothing solid, there's nothing steady, there's nothing calm about the world that we find ourselves in. In fact, in fact if you, you track the views, um, widely held views of society throughout history, they've always been shifting, they've always been morphing, they've always been changing. But in the age of the internet, in the age of social media, everything, every part of that process has sped up. So things today that have mass acceptance and wide appeal and are celebrated today would be unheard of not even five years ago. And so the constantly shifting, constantly changing narratives are coming at an, an increasing pace. It can feel like everything's in chaos and everywhere we step there's unsettled shifting ground. But what we get to see today is that there's an antidote to all of this. That in the midst of all the shaking ground around him, Paul points Timothy to a solid rock, a solid foundation that he could always return to. And the great news is that you and I, we have the same rock, where we can go and find steadiness, where we can go and find calm, where we can go and find peace and assurance and truth, because this rock is unchanging, it is eternal, and it is timeless. So if you feel like the complications of life are just speeding up more rapidly, if you're overwhelmed as a parent today or as a student or just as a follower of Jesus, or if you, you feel like the ground around you is the furthest thing from steady right now, or if you ever be in that boat someday, and you will be, then there's some really good news for you today. And to find out, I'm going to invite Paul Acey up to read today's passage. He's going to be reading for 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And if you're capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word? morning, Paul. Good morning. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, thank you. You guys have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open right there to 2 Timothy 3, as we're going to spend our time this morning unpacking those two verses, and anything else we'll throw on the screens for you. And so let's, let's do just a quick recap before we jump into these two verses. Chapter 3 has been all about the difficult times that are coming ahead for Timothy and for those after him, right? But so for 13 verses, Paul just kept talking about how the problem just keeps going to get worse. And But in verse 14, there's a shift. There's a shift in tone. There's a shift in focus where Paul begins to tell Timothy that, now what he's supposed to do about all this. And in the face of these ins, what seem like insurmountable challenges and an increasing number of opponents, there's some sweet relief. He tells him, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. In fact, all you need to do is just continue. Continue in what you've already learned and continue in what you firmly believed. And last week we saw in verse 15 that what Timothy had already learned and what he firmly believed was the sacred scriptures, as verse 15 puts it. 
And so we use that to serve as a good reminder for us that we need to be investing God's Word not just into our own hearts and minds, but also into the lives of others that we care about. And we also asked, started asking the question last week that we'll care over this week, is what exactly makes the Scripture so sacred? And the first answer we saw in verse 15 last week was that the Scriptures give us wisdom to, that lead us to salvation in Jesus. It's the Word of God that shows us our need to be saved. It's the word of God that shows us the sufficiency of Jesus in his death and resurrection. And it's the word that calls us to repent and believe in him. Now, in verse 16, we're going to see some other reasons here as to why the scriptures are sacred. And the very first one is at the start of verse 16 is that all scripture is inspired by God. And we're inspired. And I think Paul's translation actually read this. The word literally means to be breathed out by God. Now, this is an important concept for us to grasp because I do think it's, it's helpful and clarifying. The Bible that you have in your hands this morning right, goes from Genesis to Revelation. There's 66 books in this book of the Bible, right? And in those 66 books, uh, there's some, some debate still among scholars about who exactly wrote one or two of them, so I'll use the term approximately, but there's approximately 40 human authors of those 66 books. And those books were written over a period of time of 1,500 years. It took 15 centuries to write these books, Right? These authors had a variety of professions, a variety of upbringings. Some were prophets, some were priests. There were, there were those who were shepherds. There was a tent maker, a physician, a fisherman, a tax collector. And as you go through these different books, right, you can catch each personality and each writing style and the distinct flair that each human author will bring. Right? David is super poetic. Uh, Paul is eloquent and wordy. James cuts straight to the point and just has no time for fluff. Luke lays out facts like he's arguing a case in a court. John gets really philosophical. So you can see the, the different imprints they've all had in this book. But you know what's fascinating? That these 40 different authors over 1,500 years all tell the same narrative. They all proclaim the same one true God. They all point to the same one way of salvation, Jesus Christ, and they never one time contradict each other. In fact, the Bible's inerrant. And the reason why is what we see in verse 16. The reason why is divine inspiration. When those human authors were writing what would become the books of the Bible, God inspired the words that they wrote. He did not dictate it. He did not erase the author's unique styles, but they still wrote exactly what God intended them to put in his word, nothing more and nothing less. And if you have a notion to scoff at that this morning, right, then I'd like to give you a challenge. I want you to start writing a story and then pass it on to 39 other human authors over the next 1,500 years, and knowing that a good handful of those authors won't even know the rest of you authors existed, and you all have to write a story that is inerrant, that does not contradict itself, and has the same central theme throughout. And if you think human beings can do that without divine inspiration, you have more faith than I do. Because that's a further stretch than believing that God inspired every drop of his word. And here's why this is important. Because with the scriptures being inspired, what we have is an eternal God inspired his timeless word. First Peter 1 picks up on this. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You know what Peter's saying there? He's saying people come and people go. All the authors of Scripture, they came, they lived their earthly lives, and then they passed this life. They cannot write another book. Every preacher, every testimony of the good news of Jesus, every proclaimer of, gospel, of the gospel of Jesus Christ has come, and they have gone. They've gone into the grave, and the gospel has gone on because God's word is the what is timeless. God's word is eternal. 
which means that it is as true and as relevant and powerful and authoritative today as the day that it was written, which means that everything that Timothy has promised in these two verses about the Scriptures still is true and applicable for us today. The second thing we see is not just that it was inspired, but that God's Word is profitable. In verse 16, Paul reminds him that the Scriptures are inspired, and then he tells him they are profitable. That word profitable means that they are useful, that they're beneficial, they're to your gain. Now, if I ever just fully nerd out on something, you can guarantee it'll be about sports. All right, so I don't know how many of you like advanced metrics or savory metrics, but there's a newer stat being tracked in the NBA. It's, it's a simple one called plus minus. And, and the concept is this, is when you're, as a player, when you're on the floor, is your team winning or losing? Right? And so uh, instead of just tracking points and rebounds and assists, like, so, so let's say I go into a game and, and we're down 15, and when I check back out, we're down only three. Our team is still losing, but I was plus 12 at that point, right? But if I go in a game and we're up 31, I leave and we're only up 17, I was minus 14. All the questions being asked is, is this player, is this rotation, are they beneficial and profitable to team success or are they not? And I point that out, point it out to you is to tell you this. If there was a plus minus for ministry, right, Paul is telling Timothy that there's no greater plus than the Scriptures, and if you think through, we've, we've been going through this for the last two years. If you recall everything that Paul has challenged Timothy to do in these two letters, it's, it's quite a list, and it's pretty hard, and all of it is here in verse 16 and 17. And Paul is letting him know, the scriptures are your greatest tool, and they're sufficient for each of them. These two letters have mostly been about teaching and correcting false teaching, right? If Timothy was to teach his church anything, it was God's word. And what Timothy had available to him at that time was the Old Testament scriptures and the apostles' teaching, which is now our New Testament. And this was to be the foundation of his teaching. It was not to be his own opinion and personality and flair with some self-help thrown in or whatever soapbox he wanted to go off on. Timothy was not to rely on his own wisdom or his intellect or cleverness. He was supposed to follow the pattern of teaching that Paul handed to him. And you can't look at this section without referring back to chapter 2, verse 2. So if you have 2 Timothy open, look at chapter 2, verse 2, in which Paul tells him, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When he says what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, he's like, you've heard my teaching, Timothy. Right? You've heard that the scriptures were the foundation, they were the root. Everything I taught flowed from them, and it must be the same for you. And then you must train others to do the same. And the same standard applies here into our day, by the way. The scriptures absolutely have to be the source and foundation of a teaching. You know what we can't do? We can't do things like here are 10 ways to have more peace in your life. And then somewhere in there, sprinkle a Bible verse or two to support one of our 10 ideas. No, our teaching must start from the scripture, must be driven by the scripture, must flow from the scriptures. That is the source of truth in life. My genuine hope, right, whether you've been here for decades or this is your first time, my genuine hope is that if the Lord has placed you locally in Terre Haute, surrounding area, that we could be your church home. We'd love to have you. We'd love to share life with you. We commit, if you do that, to, to having the scriptures shape our teaching and be the foundation here. But if you ever look for teachers outside this place, or, you, or the Lord moves you away from this area in the future, this is my advice. Avoid the teachers and preachers who avoid God's word. If they avoid this thing, you avoid them, right? And, and because this teaching must be rooted in the scriptures. Second thing he tells them here is that it's profitable for rebuking. That means to correct those who are in sin. 
And again, right, the Bible is our guide in this in two majorly helpful ways. And the first is this, that Jesus actually gives us the pathway to rebuke to follow. He gives us the game plan. Matthew 18, here's what he tells us. He says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. Now, I love the grace that's balanced with truth here. The first step, Jesus says, is don't go public with it. Just go to the person in need of rebuke one-on-one. Approach them privately and humbly. And if there's no repentance there, go with a couple others. That still doesn't work. Get the church and get the elders of the church involved. And if that doesn't work, then Jesus says, let the relationship have its distance. Feel free to treat them like a non-believer. Not out of spite, but in hopes of future restoration. Every time the scriptures lift this up, it's always in hopes of future restoration. So we have a really simple, clear game plan to follow. Second major way the scriptures help us in this is that rebuke must be done to the standards of God's word. You can't just go about rebuking everybody for everything, right? You can't go about rebuking people for disagreements on minor matters or differences of opinion or because they did something you didn't like. Rebuke is reserved for when someone is claiming the name of Jesus and in living in violation to God's clear word. It's the scriptures that are the standard to meet, not our own, nothing else. And so the Bible is involved in the entire process. It informs us when this is needed, and it gives us the game plan to do it. And this was part of Timothy's role as a spiritual leader, and Paul is reminding him, let the Scriptures guide you. They're profitable for teaching, for rebuking, then correcting. This is not those in sin, but those who are in error. It's those who are teaching things that are false. And this is something that Timothy had to do a lot. It's been a theme of both First and Second Timothy. So it should be obvious to us how the scriptures play the leading role in this. Without a standard for truth, you can't know what is false. If you don't know what truth is, you'll never be able to spot a lie. And so the God-breathed, inspired, inerrant word of God is our source of truth. It's our foundation, our authority. And whenever someone is teaching something that contradicts with this word, or they take it out of context or twist it to where it says something it doesn't say, then we use the scriptures to call that out and bring that teaching back in line. This is our source of truth. And it's beneficial for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. And the last thing he says here is for training in righteousness. You know what another word for this is? Just simply discipling. This is helping people look more and more like Jesus. It's increasing their affection for Jesus and their obedience to him. And again, it's not hard to see how the scriptures are our best tool for this. How do we help believers grow? How can they learn the ways of God? How can they understand his design? How can they get to know God and what would please him and what wouldn't please him? How can they even know what righteousness is? The living word of God reveals this to us. That's how we know. Which is why it should be no surprise that the next thing we're told is that God's word then equips us. You see, when it came to Paul's development of Timothy, when it came to challenges that he gave him and all the commands in these letters, I hope you've noticed Paul didn't pull back any punches. Right? He, he, did, he didn't lower any standards for him. There's not one time that he points out a problem to Timothy and then gives him an easy out. Not once. In fact, you get a sense for what Paul saw in Timothy and how high a view he had of him just by leaving him in Ephesus. To trust him with that chaos and that big of a mess is an honor in and of itself. And the reason why 
is that Paul's trust was in the faithfulness of God and his trust was in the deposit of the scriptures into Timothy's life. What he was confident in, what he knew, it was Timothy's commitment to and dependence on God's word. And because of those confidence, he knew that God would give Timothy all that he needed to, to succeed. Look at verse 17. He says, Scripture is profitable. And here's why, verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word complete means to be matured, to be trained, to be fitted for service. The better we know God's word, the better it is that we can live for him. The better we know God's word, the better it is that we can serve him. So are you facing a big decision in your life? Are you, are you going through a trial right now? Do you feel stuck or confused or lost, overwhelmed? Do you, do you feel trapped? Maybe it's even by your own decisions, but you, you just feel trapped or stuck. And my advice to you is my advice in every scenario. Search the scriptures. Get in God's word and let the God-breathed living word speak life to your bones and peace to your soul and knowledge to your mind and wisdom to your circumstances. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That should be a paradigm shift for you. We're like Timothy. He's like us. We were created by a God who prepared ahead of time for us good things for us to do for his name and for his kingdom. So the question is, that's true. How do we discover those? How do we find those? How do we prepare for those? How do, we, how do we succeed at those? Well, here's how. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work, including the ones that he prepared in advance for us to do. God's Word is inspired. It is profitable and beneficial. It equips us to serve him. And so there are three challenges that I want to give you in response to these truths. And the first is this, is just to simply elevate your view of the Bible. You see, reading all that came after it, it's no surprise at all to me that Paul refers to God's Word in verse 15 as the sacred scriptures. Sacred is a word that I, I want you to grasp. Sacred is how we should view the scriptures. Sacred is anything that's given to us by God. The Bible doesn't need to be explained away. It doesn't need to be apologized for, and we don't need to be embarrassed about it. It needs to be honored and upheld and cherished. And there are plenty of ways to do that without you being superior or antagonistic to those who don't believe like we do. But in our graciousness and deference, I don't ever want us to feel badly about God's word. And that's a current strategy of our enemy in society, right? There's several concepts like, like headship or sexuality where the messaging against what God's word says is so strong and so loaded and so amped up that Christians who believe God's word almost feel like we have to apologize for or meekly stand behind it. We have to, because we're being told that, that we're just trying to uphold some old outdated patriarchy and preserve those in power until so you end up being like, yeah, yeah, I guess, I mean, I do believe it. You don't have to do that. Because when they use those lines, I, I don't know what scriptures they're reading. I really don't. Ephesians 5 tells the husband that he's to love his wife the way that Jesus loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He put himself last and gave himself up to suffer and die for her. Huge power grab, wasn't it? 1 Peter 5 tells the elders of the church to shepherd, the, shepherd their flock, not for personal gain, not to lord, over, lord power over them, not for any kind of selfish gain, but sincerely and humbly and meekly. Jesus says in Mark 10 that in his kingdom, those who want to be first must be last of all and servant to all. 
So for the life of me, I cannot find this power-hungry patriarch in the Bible. What I find is a loving God with a good design. And his word gives life, and lining up to it leads to human flourishing. Look what Paul tells Timothy again in chapter 2, verse 24. He said, the Lord's, servant, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Gentle, yes. Gracious, yes, always. Patient, of course. But apologetic about what God says in his word, not at all. No, never, because after all, you didn't write it. And the one who did, knows more than the rest of us combined. And so we find our freedom, we find our joy, we find our confidence in the sacred scriptures that are true and beneficial. We honor God's word, we hold it in reverence and grant to it the authority it rightly has. And secondly, let God's word go to work on you. Look again at how it's profitable. Paul lists teaching and doctrine, and he lists rebuke, correction, and training. You want to know a simpler way to put it? The Bible tells us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. That's what it does for us. And, he, and so here's a challenge we have in James 1. James says, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone who looks at his own face in a mirror, for he, he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets the kind of, what kind of person he was. You know what's really cool about the Bible? It's the only book that reads us as we read it and reveals to us what is right and shows us what isn't right in us and teaches us how to make things right and gives us wisdom on how to stay right. It equips us, it trains us, it matures us, it prepares us for everything that God will ever ask of us. And so the strong encouragement is this, let it go to work. And the reason I say that is this. There is a decision that you and I, all of us, we make every single time we're exposed to truth. Every time we're exposed to truth, we have a decision to make. We either, on one hand, we either soften ourselves to it and receive it and humbly submit to it, or we harden ourselves to it. We harden our hearts towards it and reject it. Which is why, ironically, the church has the highest likelihood of having people with really hard, cold hearts because they are the ones that are exposed most often to truth. And so they have more opportunities than any to harden themselves to it. Which is why every church ever in existence has had at least one or a few people that has been in the church for years and has a really hard, cold heart. Because the temptation is so prevalent. But this does not need to be so. If we honor God's word, then we will approach it with deference and humility. We will invite it. We invite the living word to go to work on us. We will ask it to reveal what needs reveal and ask God to, to show us through, and then repent of what needs repenting and ask the Lord to transform us through his truth. And it will for sure be profitable for us. Which is why the last encouragement is this, to have a lifelong relationship with the word. The better we know God's word, the better we know God. The better we know God's word, the better we can live for him. The better we know God's word, the better we can serve him. And so if we are starving ourselves from this word, we're starving our souls from the nourishment that it needs. And the worse we know God, the worse we'll live for and serve him. And so I don't care where you're at this morning, right? If, if you're in a good season, or you're in a vibrant relation with the word, you're, you're, you have a daily walk with it, keep it up, right? Good, but keep it up. Don't ever settle. Don't think you've arrived. You've not gotten to the fullness of the depths of God's word. There's always more. And so keep that up. 
If you're at a low point and you've fallen out of practice, man, there was a time in my life where I was reading it, I was, I was taking it in, I was studying it more, and I've just kind of let it drift away. Recommit today that you're gonna make it a central aspect of your life. If you've never started a daily relationship with God's word, you've never moved beyond just sitting and letting someone else read it to you, then commit to God that you will start today. We've printed out reading plans that are available for you out in that room. Take one with you and get started. It does not matter near as much what has led to today as it does what you will do from here. Now, not long ago, I preached a funeral for a woman named Evelyn Kuhn. Evelyn was a longtime member of this church. And when I came in 2010 and met her, she had such a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ that I wrongly made some assumptions about her that weren't true. And one of them was I just wrongly assumed she was a lifelong Christian. It was just because of her attitude and her spirit and the fruit of her life. I was like, man, this, this is a lady that's walked with the Lord for decades and it just wasn't true. It was shocking to me to discover that she was an orphan growing up. And she, was, she went from house to house to house. She was never adopted, never had a home for much longer than, than a couple years, was bounced around all these different places, never knew her parents, never had any relationship with them, never went to any kind of church growing up. It was actually later in life, in, in, late, in her late 50s, that her and her husband came to church looking for hope because her husband had been diagnosed with cancer and they told him that he wasn't going to live. So they're looking for something bigger than that. And when they came here, they found Jesus, who was bigger than that. And Evelyn, a brand new believer, late in her 50s, began devouring the word of God. She had a passion for it. She learned it. She grew immensely because of it. And so when I came strolling in some 15 years later, I saw what it looked like, the fruit of decades and decades and decades of faith. The last visit I had with her before death, I won't ever forget her health was failing her. She required 24-hour round-the-clock care. She had lost all her independence. She was very limited in what she could do physically, had almost no mobility, which required someone to be with her all the time. And yet as I talked with her, sitting right next to her in the nightstand was her Bible. And what she wanted to talk about was what she had read that morning in Matthew. What else she wanted to talk about was what she had read last month in Job and what the Lord had been revealing to her. And in the state of life where she literally was bound to a chair and could do nothing, she was still consuming God's word passionately because her desire for it remained high. Listen, we're all sinners. There's not a one of us that doesn't need the grace of Jesus. There's not a one of us that doesn't need a deposit of truth into our souls. There's not a one of us that doesn't need teaching and rebuking and correcting and training and equipping and wisdom and hope. We all need it. And we've been given all of that and more in God's inspired word. So we must have a relationship with it. We must be in it. More importantly, we must be shaped by it. And that relationship needs to carry on for the rest of our days. The Bible is not something you ever graduate from because you never outgrow your need for it. So elevate your view of God's word. Elevate it. Invite his word to go to work on your life. Do not harden yourself to the truth in it, but soften yourself to it. And commit to having it be an integral part for the rest of your life. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful. So thankful this morning for the gift of your word. So thankful that when we gather as a church, we have this incredible resource that will guarantee that we won't waste each other's time. God, that when we, when we open your word, we, we, what is revealed to us are eternal, timeless truths that are just as relevant, just as authoritative, just as timeless as the day they were written. And that revealing of truth 
changes us every way. And so God, I pray that we have a chance now, that we have every single week, we have a chance to harden ourselves to the truth of your word. We have a chance to harden ourselves to the truth that, that your word is authoritative, that your word speaks over every situation in our life, that your word is truth. And we can humbly receive that, we can accept that, we can commit to being more in that, or we can harden ourselves and cold in our hearts towards that, Lord. So I pray for softening around the room. I pray that we would respond in a way that is humble and deferential to you and just invites you to work. And I pray that you will raise up a church here of people whose passion for, knowledge of, and relationship with the word remains vibrant every day of our life. Do this for your glory and do this for our sake. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before these guys lead you in another song, we'll give you just a response time. There's some guidance on the screens for you. Um, to help you if you need it. But this, this really is that time every week in which truth has been revealed through God's word and you have a chance right now either to soften yourselves to it or harden yourselves towards it. And it's my strong encourage you to, to, to approach the Lord humbly, ask him what he's been revealing to you today and respond humbly and submissively to him. This is your time with him. Do not waste it.